podcast by the vet gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax. It's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome to the Vet Gurus. Brendan here with Mark, episode number 8989. Mark, Friday, June the 28th, 2019. Intro man was a little bit slow there coming in, but he, he made it in the end, Mark. And as you can probably tell, I'm feeling a tad. Tad better this week. The man flu's disappeared. I've given it to my lovely wife, Annette, um, which she's not too happy about. She kept yelling at me, um, well, for the last week or so, keep away from me, get away, and I'd just be saying, oh, I hope I need a cuddle. I know I feel bad. Um, and, yeah, I've given it to her, unfortunately. But um, it's not as bad as what I had um, because it is not a man feel, I suppose. She's not carrying on as much as I did. Um, and she just has a bit of a croaky voice at the moment. So hopefully it will not continue any further than that, Mark. And, um, yeah, the other – well, we've been up shit creek, Mark, as <laughs> as, as a, an Australian term talks about. Um, for those of you non-Australian listeners, you'll have to look that one up. But – yeah, we have been up shit creek. Our um, our crapper was on the on the crapper. Um, so our our sewer, our sewer blocked up, Mark. Oh um, no! And I don't know whether I told you about this, but it did block up about oh, three or four days ago. And luckily enough, our good neighbour Mark just happens to be a plumber, and um, he put the um, the little um, machine with the little thing that churns all the roots and stuff and put that down and he found the blockage right at our fence line at the back of our back of our backyard where it goes into the into the main sewer line there and he unblocked it but then Nanny said it was um the things were gurgling and carrying on a bit um soon after it so we ended up um trying again and having to look down the back the little pit there down the back and it's blocked up again mark so uh, um, Mark came out again and um, tried to plunge it this time, but it was blocked at the past our little outflow there. Which the good news is, once it gets past the outflow at the end of your house, it, it's the it's the um, it's um, needs to be fixed by yeah Melbourne Water or um, uh, Yarra Valley Water is the um, supply company, so it's not our 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 doing. So we don't pay for the fixing of it, but it was still blocked. So we were crossing our legs today and trying not to do any number ones or number twos, Mark, um, to stop the backflow. And um, I phoned up the the water board and. Um, they were good enough to say they'd come in about two hours um, maximum, and he came about one hour afterwards. Jeez, that's service. <coughs> oh, excuse me, I've still got this cough a little bit. And then, um, yeah, he was out the back just probably half an hour ago, Mark. He left and uh, he put the machine down the pit at the back there and um, into the main sewer line, and thank goodness he has unblocked it. So we are no longer up Shit Creek. And, now um, everything's flowing. <laughs> Everything is flowing. You do not realise how important sanitation is, do you? Um, until until things get blocked. Until you don't have it. 
Yes, and it reminds me of my second little bit of chit-chat news item that I was going to talk about, Mark, yeah. and that is a big shout-out to Amanda. One of our dear listeners, Amanda, contacted us via, via email and she was listening to one of our old episodes where I was talking about my um, my hunger and my thirst for chilies, Mark, and, and um, many episodes ago we spoke about um, me trying to grow some chilies and that the possums had eaten the chili trees, the little um, chili pots and that, and I don't have any chilies anymore. And out of the blue, and I did pass the email on to you, Mark, didn't I? Um, Amanda has very kindly said she grows lots of different types of chilies at home and she's in. She sent some of her chili seeds in the post, so I'm looking forward to getting these chili, and I'm, I'm just I'm just very happy our, our toilet's working now <laughs> because once I try these chilies, because she said she has very hot chilies on the I forget what the chili scales called. There's some. Can you remember? There's some Not fancy. Yeah, there is. Uh... Yeah, um, and it's um, yeah, and she keeps she grows a lot of the really hot ones. So thank you, Amanda, and um, I'm very very grateful for you sending those, and I will let you know. On air, once we get the chilies, and I'm going to plant some of the seeds, so to speak, and I will be also trying some of the dried chilies that she sent me. So I'm very excited, Mark. I'm very excited. What have you been up to? Well, just um, uh, this the usual, just plodding along at work, and uh, I've been um, actually uh, headed out to um, an area just west of us in Newcastle, the Wollombi region I spent some time in today, just, you know, scouting the area out, looking for spots where I might see some birds or reptiles. It was um one of those funny days up here, Brendan, where we had glorious sunshine for spurts and then um and then uh a bit of inclement weather with uh, with a bit of um uh, spot of rain, nothing uh, nothing that um, ruins your day or anything. But um, but yeah, it was a wonderful day just to be out in the bush. Yes, and I feel jealous as usual when I see that you've been out there um, communing with nature and also those fantastic pictures. You had some real crackers, as you like to say, Mark, of, of um, pictures there and. Um, yeah, very impressed, Mark. Very impressed, and I think we will need to include at least one of your pictures in our in our special giveaway that we'll have to make up pretty soon because we'll be getting close to that one hundredth episode, and we'll have to have some sort of um, prize, um, a giveaway for our listeners, Mark. We are headed towards the century, and uh, and I do think it's an opportune time for us to give back to all those who uh, who. Um who have listened to us and, and supported us. And so a little bit of a competition and a prize. And um, look, I, I, I'm always flattered that you think so highly of my photographs, but I think that, that you know, we're a matching set. Your photographs, uh, those India ones, uh, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know that, um, that my photos are in any league of their own. I think that uh, we might just share that uh, um, uh, uh, success with the camera. We complement each other with our styles and our types of and little niches that we like with our photography. So it came to me, Scoville units. Ah, yes, for the chilies. Yes, I, so I will let you know from the email. I, I, if I remember correctly, Amanda said her chilies were in the top ten percent of the hottest chilies. So, yeah, I am glad you have got that uh, plumbing toilet um, sorted. <laughs> Yes, well, we never know. There might be a great ring of fire happening fairly soon, Mark, so we will see. We will see. Yes, so vetgurus.com is the place to go if you want to 
if you want to give back, we'll be giving back to our listeners soon with that giveaway that we'll um, sort out soon for that 100th episode. But um, we're always looking for people to help sponsor us. Just go to vetgurus.com and you can see the links there to patreon.com where you can subscribe and um, send us a, a few dollars each month to help pay for our costs, Mark. So that would be good. Um do you do, oh, you did a bit of a review last week? I have a, a review to come up soon, Mark, but I don't have it ready yet, so um, I don't have anything to review this. Did, do you have anything? No, up? no. But it is one of the interesting parts of our sort of agenda, the way that we set these uh, podcasts up. Um, it's funny because you would think the review would be the thing that would might well be one of the easiest parts, but I'm finding that one of the hardest bits. Most preparation, most consideration, even though you always come up with the same score. Um, the information that comes before <laughs> it is quite useful, I find. Yes, well, I'll, I'll try and read you something that's either extra special and higher than my usual score or, or very poor. Um, so <laughs> I'll, I'll see what I can do, Mark. I will see what I can do. Um, well, let's jump into our news stories. I think you've got the first one, and it's something about coffee and birds the best combination (laughs) two of my favorite things unfortunately they combine in in not a particularly pleasant way um i i have i I just as a quick earlier side to this news item i was going to mention that i've given up um uh coffee cups i take a a a, a, uh what do they call them A, a a keeper keep cup Keep yes, with me pretty much everywhere I go now. I've got uh, a few of them, um, and um, and I won't get a coffee unless I can take one of those. Everyone, it, there seems to be, I don't know, people don't seem to. Uh, the most place, most places cope pretty well with it. But the essence of this story is that that's not the only. Uh, when I have my coffee, the cup is not the only ecologically damaging part of the problem. And um, and this particular study, uh, which looks at how, well, in a, in a sense, the question is how can coffee plantations be more bird friendly, um, and it. The really interesting thing about it was the extent of the study. It looked at 57,000 birds um, over a period of 12 years. Um, these birds were individually banded. They represented 265 species in Costa Rica. They looked at them at 19 sites. Um, and the information that uh, citizen scientists um Uh, gathered uh, by observing the birds gave some great clues about the um, nature of the ecosystem's health and in particular um, the uh, nature of patchwork of habitats in agricultural countrysides and of course in Costa Rica um, the uh, one of the key tropical agriculture endeavors is um is coffee farms and there are some you know there's there's certainly circumstances where coffee farms are um a a monoculture where there's nothing else grown there is a tendency now to um grow uh coffee um in um mixed arrangements with shade uh the the canopy of mature trees that um uh can help some of the aspects of um of growing the coffee um and it's pretty clear that uh that those canopy trees help the birds 
not a huge uh, uh, finding, I would have thought, but it's great to have like just unbelievably detailed evidence over of large numbers of birds and uh, over large numbers of years to actually provide serious, serious evidence. Um, of course, the key thing is that uh, the birds do best in... Um, in their natural habitat, um, and they certainly do not do as well um, in plantations, uh, but they definitely do better in plantations that have those uh, those additional, you know, where it's not a pure monoculture. So, so I reckon I'm still safe drinking the coffee, Brendan. What do you think? Yes, um, that was. That, I was just blown away by the fact that, that yeah, twelve year study, fifty seven thousand two hundred fifty five individual birds were banded um, by the, and most of those citizen scientists, as you suggest, um, as they labelled them, were were. Um, I think they were farmers, weren't they? A lot of them were the coffee farmers that helped um, um, catch and ban them. That's amazing, isn't it? Um, so it's a fantastic study. So yes, um, but I, the only unfortunate thing is I don't think there's any way you can identify whether or not the coffee you have just drunk, Mark, is from a plantation that has tree shades or shade grown, um, which is coffee that's shade grown is coffee that's grown under a full canopy of mature trees and that's still that's still done but I, uh, by the sound of it very very um less so than um, the ones that aren't um so maybe it's something they should put on the labeling so as well so add another label um to your coffee and yes do you get i'm um, speaking of those little keep cups the cups that you take with you do you um it certainly happens here in melbourne um very commonly that if you get uh, if you take that to the place where you purchase your cup of coffee they'll give you a discount if you bring your own cup it's usually 50 cents or one dollar does that happen when it does it does but do you know what brendan i tell them i don't want it i just pay the usual amount um so that um you know that they're more profitable and there's no hassle for them or they don't have to do out a different thing i just buy my coffee the same as everyone else i don't want any special deal i don't want them to be less profitable so you're an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, you're, you're very altruistic there, Mark, aren't you, as usual with most of your things? Um, yes, um, I must take my keep cup with me. I've got about yeah. 10 of them. Um, and it's the usual thing that happens um, when I get home from a conference or some, some meeting. Um, I tend to have a little a swag of... Um, little um, giveaways that I've got from the trade displays and, and typically these days it will include at least one of those recyclable or, or those reusable um, coffee cups, Mark. So we, we have a bit of a cupboard full of them um, and some of them are, you know, um, they have tops that are not yes. mix and match and, and they've got oh, sort of, you know. I know where you're oh, headed with this. It's messy. It's a bit like a drawer full of socks, isn't it? That they can't find the two that match. But so, the problem is yeah. that they're so close that you put you go out with one, you put your coffee in it, and you tip it up and slosh it on yourself. Yeah, you drench yourself with it, and especially if you're driving along and you've you've scalded yourself with hot coffee. It's not a good look on the way to work, and I'm even crankier than usual when I get to work if that happens, Mark. So yes, so. 
Yes, so they can have the downsides, <laughs> these keep cups, can't they? Well, my first news story is about a type 1 diabetic koala, Mark, um, and I don't know whether you've seen this. It's, um, well, it's dead, the koala, but um, it was quite a good story. Um, it was um, in, in San Diego, San Diego Zoo. Um, they collaborated with a, a human um, diabetic diabetic institute and they developed a continuous glucose monitor um, which they implanted uh, uh, on the back or the side of this um, this um, koala um, in order to prevent taking the you know twice daily or three or four time daily skin pricks um, for the glucose monitoring and there's a little video that goes along with this story and we have a link to the story on vetgoos.com um, that shows you them doing the little uh, prick of the, the ear which is where they were taking the um, original samples from so they implanted the little um, um, diabetic monitor um, and it was working quite well um, and it, um, it sent the um, information about his continuous blood glucose measurements to a smartphone app, Mark, and sent alerts alerts to to the um, researchers or the zoo vets if if the um, blood glucose level became dangerously low, and it was working quite well. Um, but sadly, in late two thousand and eighteen, Quincy was the name of the of the um, koala developed pneumonia, and it ended up having having to be euthanized. Um, so yeah, I thought it was a, a good little story. The crossover of human and animal medicine and, and equipment. Have you had any experience with these sort of um, implant devices, Mark? And these no, apps? I've had um, absolutely no experience with them, but I was really interested to hear your story, not because of the the uh, the device, which, uh, as I understand, is becoming much more common amongst, um, amongst humans, um, but because of bloody koala gets diabetes. Um, and I, I did... Note that in our Australian Veterinary Journal, um, uh, in oh, I've just looked up the reference, 1998, there was another publication of um, where they uh, documented a uh, case of um, type one diabetes in a in a koala. It surprises me, Brendan. I'm shocked that these. Um, very interesting. Yeah. Yes, very interesting. Um, and I I think I remember that. That particular journal article, yeah, um, yeah. So, what's the story with it? Yeah, it, it's, it's something that needs. There's a PhD, Mark, another PhD for somebody to do. So, yeah, jump to it. Yes. So that's my first news story. What have you got next? You've got a bit of a weird. I do one, have a weird you? one. It's um, the story, and I don't know whether this is a myth or for real. Um, it's the story of the Naluga, Brendan. The Naluga, a Naluga. Um, in the late 1980s, an Inuit subsistence farmer, Jens Larsen, I bet that, I hope that's his real name, um, doesn't sound very Inuit to me. I've actually been on Twitter, I've been, I followed someone. This story is starting to fall apart at the very beginning. <laughs> anyway, Jens killed a trio of very strange whales off the western coast of Greenland. He and his fellow subsistence farmers would regularly catch one of two species, narwhals, whose males famously have the long tusk, and belugas with their distinctive white skin. But Larsons knew what three whales were neither. Their skin wasn't white nor mottled um, like a narwhal's, but uniformly grey. The flippers were beluga-like, but the tails were narwhal-esque. 
<laughs> I love all these words in this article. Um, in all his years of hunting, Larson had never seen anything like them, so he kept one of the skulls. Anyway, in 1990, the skull caught the eye of one of the uh, cetacean specialists who uh, just came across, um, I don't know what he was doing in uh, uh, Larson's (laughs) Jen's garage. Um, But he he took some, uh, um, he took the skull and took it to Copenhagen. and uh, looks like, from the measurements and a little bit of in other information, they've decided that it might well be a hybrid skull between the two species. So, um, so they've called them narlugas, half narwhal, half beluga. Um, so it's not an unreasonable idea. The whales are roughly the same size; they occur in the same waters, and they're much more closely related to each other than any other species. So, um, and they definitely have been found in the wild, like co, you know, swimming in. Uh, uh, each other's pods. So, um, geez, that's, I don't know what to make of it, Brendan. Well, maybe he's spent a bit too much time out in the cold and he's got brain freeze, I think. But if you read down a little bit further, Mark, there's a bit more proof um, in that article. I'm just scrolling through that article of yours now. And they talk about analysing the DNA extracted from um, one of the creature's teeth and that um, most of its DNA was a half and half mix between the Jeez. two species. But its mitochondrial DNA, a secondary set, um, was entire in narwhal. So um, they, they, yeah, they think it is. Um, they think it is a, a hybrid there. And then they go on about um, looking at the nargle. Uh, the teeth and um, other bits. Yeah, it, it is a bit sus, as having said that, um, looking at this article. But when you read through that um, bit bit further, and um, I think maybe maybe it is, maybe it has occurred, yes. Um, but, yes, uh, we need to get back to that. We need to look up this Jens Larsen um, from Greenland and um, see if um, he actually does exist. Mark, I think that's the next thing we need to do. Oh, this exhausted me, that um, that um, little one. I think we need something a little bit light, Mark, and that's my last news story. And that's what is the fastest dog in the world. And I have a funny <laughs> feeling I've covered this one before um, because, as you can see, if you haven't um, pulled it up, it's it's talking about how the greyhound's the fastest animal, or at least it has the maximum acceleration, where a greyhound can reach 45 miles per hour, which is 72 kilometres per hour within its first six strides. And, gee, I'll tell you what, that's certainly what um, that my little boy here um, can do, Jezza, um, when he's when he's running up and down the backyard with, with Patch, the female. It only takes him two or three strides to catch up to her, and he just... He's just laughing in her face um, as he's <laughs> as he's sprinting along beside her there, and then they have a bit of a uh, bit of a fight at the end of their few laps around there. Um, yeah, but this story talks about the, che- the cheetah is the only other land animal with the degree of acceleration of a greyhound. Um, and the cheetah, um, it, its real talent lies in going from rest to 60 miles an hour in roughly three seconds, Mark. Um, so, um, and uh, just talks a little bit more about facts and figures of, of greyhounds, saying they're the fastest member of the group of hunting dogs um, that they've um, that they've had. So, yeah, there we go. So that was um, well, probably something uh, that's wasted two minutes of your life there, Mark. That I didn't need to didn't need to point out, but yeah, it was a little nice feel good 
greyhound story. So yeah, I've actually had two nice stories this week. I don't know what's wrong. I, I think um, I was feeling sick and sorry for myself last week, and I've come out um, in a good mood this week. In a good, you mood. are in a good mood. It is just the tone of your voice tells me that you're a happy man. Well, let's see how happy I am at the end of um, end of this episode, Mark, because I'm going to quiz you. For, so for our main topic. So our main topic this week is analgesia and avians. So bird brain, how the bird brain works and does analgesics or does analgesia work in bird brain? Can we stop pain in birds and what do we use and how do you use it and how do we give it to them and how long does it last? Great. Are you going to ask them all in one go? Yes, and you have to answer them all in one breath, Mark, as well, like, like I asked them. So let's start with the basics, I suppose. Um, obviously, we um, we do know that birds feel pain. Is that correct? Without a doubt. All the um, the uh, structures, the pathways, the um, the nociceptors, the, the nerves that uh, um, sense discomfort, all those structures are there. There's always the argument. Brendan, for any of our unusual pets, about um, even if all those uh, those things are there, uh, do our animals actually sense and feel it as pain? Um, and I, well, it's a question that's more philosophic than um, than uh, than than um, scientific. And but I think it's fairly safe to say, having all the gear to feel it. Um, and responding in ways that are um, aversive to nociceptive stimuli, I think it's. Pre- I'm pretty happy to call it. They feel it, and we are in a position where we need to try and stop it. Yeah, and I think we always, both of you and I, talk about the the throw throwaway line, but I think it's an, an important one. Um, it's you know assume all animals feel pain unless proven otherwise and i think that's the the way that the stance we need to start with mark I, that's it? definitely like a you know a, a foundational philosophy for the way i practice i've got uh, um no shame in admitting that um that uh, that's sort of like a foundational principle it's interesting because um when i first graduated um i distinctly remember my then boss um saying to me that um you know, pain was a good thing, that it kept the uh, the animal still. It meant that, you know, in the case of a spay, that it wasn't jumping around. Um, and I do think I don't, um, you know, while I don't subscribe to that, uh, that uh, point of view, I do think that um, we do need to be aware that, uh, that animals that are no longer feeling all the significance of the pain, um, we need to take into account for that of that and make a provision but I still think um, that's a small job to add to um, the benefits of providing pain relief Brendan absolutely so what are we going to use Mark how are we going to, where do we go from here so what 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 do you suggest we um, chat about first do we talk about the types of pain relief we may be providing in birds, how long they last. Um, we can talk about anything you want, but I would like to um, probably just start um, by talking about um, a real focus I wanted to talk about was the opioids and um, and the some of the 
the difficulties, some of the difficulties of using them in birds um, and some of the ways I use them. But I did, because we are going to talk about pain in general, I was going to talk about a couple of other principles first. So I'm sure you were going to ask me something along the lines of, besides opiates, what other forms of pain relief do you use? Um, and I was going to answer, Brendan, that the first thing I do is, before I use any medication, is that I try to set the, I suppose, the external environment. So um, by that, I mean things like making sure that the bird isn't threatened, that it's in an enclosure where it's not worried about dogs and cats nearby, making sure that it can relax in that environment, making sure it's thermally supported because with extreme pain comes the the, the consequence of not being able to maintain normal thermoregulatory function. Um, to simple things like splinting a wing if a or a fractured leg if something is broken or badly sprained um, then simply immobilizing it will provide a significant amount of pain relief so those things environmentally outside sort of the pharmacological treatment i think are really really important and gee that applies to to the other species as well, the the reptiles and the mammals, Mark. And I, I, I still am amazed these days. It's only probably several times a year that this happens. Fortunately, where I have, we may have somebody saying, "Oh, I think my rabbit, my dog, my cat, my my lizard has a broken leg," and um, um, it happened yeah. a few days ago. And do you think it's painful? And uh, oh, gee, you just slap your forward don't you with your palm and think um what do you what am i going to say and i usually just say to i try and control myself mark i do try and control myself and i say well if you had a broken leg do you think it would be painful if it's if it's flapping in the breeze um do you think we need to um immobilize it a little bit to help with um preventing that ongoing pain that's happening with it and i'm sure you've seen similar with, with the other species as well and um, it just never ceases to me amazing me that people don't see that connection that hey this animal has a broken leg, wing, whatever, and um, perhaps that's that's. But I think it's it's a great point to make, Brendan, because I think sometimes as veterinarians and veterinary support uh, people, we we have a, an understanding about physiology and anatomy that um, that is well beyond you know the average person, but we take it for granted that they they might. Well, I'm guilty of taking it for granted that they might not have as sophisticated or complex understanding as uh, as I hope I have, but um, but sometimes they have no idea at all. I've even had uh, human physicians, doctors, um, bring their animals yes. in and be surprised that I talk to them about you know basic physiological functions like nerves or blood pressure you mean my dog has that um and so we have got to realize that and I'm the same as you I do hit my forehead very hard with those phone calls but I think it's very important for us to understand that that not everyone has the same uh same understanding that that these animals will definitely be in pain they have the same the same equipment and um and your point was uh, well taken at the beginning there that um one of the things about uh, talking about pain in birds is that uh, that I am going to be repeating a lot of the things that we the general principles that we apply to all our um our patients whether they be the traditional pets or the the uh, unusual and exotic and avian 
patients. They, they, we're going to apply those principles to all of them, Brendan. Yes. So speaking of those principles, what, what do you want to chat about, about providing pain relief before a suspected painful event like well, surgery? <laughs> it's great. I want to say that it's a great thing, whether it's whether it's for me personally <laughs> or for one of my patients. I think um, that it's really, really important, and this is probably one of the the points of discussion where it's it's probably a good thing to have a talk about the differences between um, between birds and other species. Um, but I am an absolute advocate, a fanboy of a multimodal. Uh, pre-surgical um, uh, analgesia as part of my analgesia and anaesthetic protocol. And so I think it is absolutely mandatory that each time we plan to undertake a uh, painful procedure, we put in place a plan um, to alleviate that uh, pain. And it's really important, Brendan, because um, we need to, if we're going to use, uh, for example, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, um, then we need to be aware that um, that blood pressure changes in our patients might make the kidneys more vulnerable to the negative effects. Um, we need to make sure that um, we have control, that we have the ability to give our patients fluid therapy and help to manage their blood pressure. Um, we also, one of the things that, um, that that has been over the course of my career working with birds has been, I don't know, the bane of my existence, um, to put it bluntly, um, is that birds um, not at a... You know, it's not every single bird, but at a rate greater than our other patients, we will, have, and particularly because the I think the birds have a greater, you know, ASA score when we when we are anaesthetizing them. But a significant number of them will um, pass away, a, a peri anaesthetic, and sometimes it's not in association with a major surgical procedure. Um, and one of the factors that plays into this likelihood that they might expire is the fact that, um, in my experience, breathing rate is not always a good indicator of their depth of anesthesia. So one of the things that birds do is that they will change the uh, the total, you know, the size of each breath, so the extent of the ventilation, um, but they'll keep doing it at the same rate. So if you're counting the number of breaths, you will say that the bird's stable, not having a problem, yet um, the degree of ventilatory excursion can drop off significantly, particularly with length of anesthesia, and then the birds become progressively hypoxic and then suddenly um, they don't give you much chance once they reach a certain level of hypoxia, the heart just stops. And opioids, um, one of my um, favourite um, analgesics um, for my patients, um, they can make this problem worse. And so it is very, very important that if we are using them, this is one of those situations that we need to be aware of the side effects and we need to factor that into our anaesthesia. Okay, so let's go back, go back one step, Mark, and you mentioned non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. So which ones would you recommend um, as 
potentially or definitely or maybe giving some sort of pain relief. Well, there's no doubt that um, that uh, most of the non-steroidals uh, provide pain relief, but we use uh, meloxicam because of its um, uh, availability, because of its cost, because of its safety in birds. Um, we uh, definitely use a significant amount of meloxicam. And um, so you would use that as part of that pre-perioperative or pre-operative um, no, protocol? No, what I tend not? to do with um, meloxicam is, as I do with um, other species, even though it does appear that the kidneys of birds are much more resilient to the negative effects of meloxicam, uh, particularly under the effects of blood pressure, I still am a bit of a weenie and wait till I've gotten to the stage of... Um, of uh, lowering the the isoflurane, turning it off. Um, if I have um, a bird that's not undergoing anaesthesia, though, then that's definitely the the time that we're happy to use um, meloxicam straight away. Okay, so what would you use? Well, most commonly we're using butorphanol. Now, I have to. There's a little prelude to what I use most frequently that I have to go into. The reason that we use um, butorphanol is that there are a number of studies that show that it works, um, though it's a really interesting thing when you start reading through um, these journal publications which make assessments of pain. They are really, um, it's an immensely complex thing to measure with any degree of scientific certainty. And of course, it involves in one way or another, the consideration of uh, inflicting some painful stimuli, um, which, you know, has ethical um, uh, considerations of its own. But these studies uh, are not large in number and they're often very, um, uh, uh, well, maybe, maybe they're not set up as well as they possibly could be. Um, so I think that... Um, Definitely, we would use butorphanol. Butorphanol is a uh, kappa opioid agonist, um, and uh, most birds in the analysis of their um, the type of uh, opioid receptors in their brain, um, uh, they do have a much greater percentage of kappa receptors. And that's always been assumed, that la much larger 70 or 80% of the receptors being kappa receptors, that's been interpreted as suggesting that kappa receptors play a much greater role in analgesia in birds. Um, and certainly the the um, the general thrust of most of the studies that have been done would seem to confirm that. Though I think the key thing here is that um, it's a, it's a little bit of a um, you know we we find that different uh, different analgesics might work slightly differently in dogs or cats, and they're very closely related species um, from the the. Uh, carnivorous mammal family, um, uh, but, um, but across the whole phylum of birds, there is definitely some differences. There is definitely um, circumstances where uh, um, analgesic effects might not necessarily be correlated um, with uh, the um, presence of kappa receptors and the, and the doses of butorphanol. 
But having having done that caveat, okay. I would um, definitely say that most of our commonly kept parrots, um, most of them respond well to butorphanol. Okay, so perhaps if you mentioned the the the, the range of of dosages that you would suggest, me, Brandon, you've, I don't think effective. you've ever mentioned a time right. the whole time we've been doing this eighty nine episodes where we've mentioned dose rates. Yes, I usually say keep the dose rates out of it, but we can. You can talk broadly for this, just just for this particular um, item. These and how long questions. does it last for? Um, and, and how do you give it? So gen- yeah, how do you give it? What, what, what do you give it orally? It IM subcut intraperitoneum <laughs> intravenous. Any other options? Intraosseous. We're generally uh, giving it uh, <laughs> intramuscularly. Um, there, uh, we have, there have been, you know, in other species, in our uh, cats, for example, we would um, be prepared to try transmucosal um, doses of opioids to try and not suffer the consequences of first pass um, metabolism in the liver, so that um, that you know, if you squirt buprenorphine on the gums of a cat you get much better analgesia than if you um, mix it with their food and allow them to eat it and it gets to their stomach. Um, But my experience is that that transmucosal absorption doesn't occur in birds. So we don't use any um, oral dosing. There's no evidence that um, that oral dosing uh, has any effect. And the pharmacokinetic studies involving butorphanol in oral studies show that um, that, uh, the, the it never reaches, um, you know, ten percent of the uh, therapeutic levels um, re- that might be required in those species. So oral is out. Um, injection. We sometimes give uh, give it intravenously, um, but most commonly we'd be giving it intramuscularly. And part of the reason that we do that is not, you know, the obvious reason that I'm lazy and not very good at giving intravenous injections, uh, but more importantly that time curve changes that if you that these drugs definitely do have a very short duration of action in birds it would be in, uh, you know the studies that have been done suggest it might be uh, butorphanol might last a couple of hours um, in most birds um, if they're in most parrots if they're um, given a dose between um, 0.2 and 0.3 milligrams per kilogram um, and um, and so that's you know the sort of thing that we would do. There are in the literature dramatically higher dose rates, um, and certainly some of those dose rates are scary high for me. Um, so certainly uh, doses between 0.6 mg per kg and one milligram per kilogram have been published in the literature. Um, but we would we would generally stick between point uh, two and point three milligrams per kilogram. Yes. So, if you had a bird that needed ongoing analgesia, Mark, do you then send home that bird with a whole lot of little syringes with um, some of that butorphanol? I mean, how, how two, two comments with that or two questions? How 
how practical is that if if that analgesia is only going to last for you know two or three hours or maybe a tad longer? And are you worried about um, handing out um, an opiate to to a client to hopefully give to their bird? Um, yes, I am. All any time I hand over, um, uh, well, any medication for that matter. Um, but you know the fentanyl patches that we might send home with our uh, rabbits, dogs, or cats. The they're all those, um, even uh, the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs that we might use, potentially, <clears throat> I think I've got your lurgy, Brendan, <clears throat> those drugs potentially could be involved in a, um, you know, a, 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 a dangerous situation, particularly for a young person. So I think any time we dispense medications, we need to be you know, uh, diligent and explain the, the risks and consequences to people. And there are certainly clients that um, not in a million years would I dispense any um, opiates to under any circumstances. <clears throat> and there are other clients who I um, trust implicitly. But I think the key thing to keep in mind here is that um, butorphanol is a mu antagonist um, and so it's unlikely to um, to be uh, to be useful to someone who has a an addiction to mu agonists. And um, bloody hell, if they had to um, squeeze eat, if they're going to, it would be so painful <laughs> to jab yourself a hundred thousand times with those little syringes. The volumes in each of those bird injections are not going to be suitable. Um, the entire total dose is not going to be yes, enough to have an and that's what, that's that's what I was getting at with my loaded question there, Martin. The volume and the amount there would be unlikely to be an issue um, with with you. So we have this bird with butorphanol on board. What what else are we going to use for analgesia in in this painful procedure? Well, or there's two other quick things that I'd mention. The first one is that um, I think there is a a growing sense that um, it's a good thing for us to use a regional anesthesia, particularly for um, maybe if we're repairing a fracture or um, something like that. But I think the key thing there is to be very, very uh, local anesthesia, uh, whether it's birds or um, uh, I know ferrets, for example, um, there's been a reputation that these animals are sensitive to uh, local anesthesia and it might be a, a dangerous thing to do the, to them. But um, almost invariably, I find that's a dose-related thing, that um, splash blocks or um, whatever people might do if the dose is not calculated very carefully because of the very small size of these patients, um, then it potentially can be an overdose situation. But if the dose is accurately calculated, um, they're very useful adjuncts for focally painful uh, procedures. What's your experience with uh, local anaesthetics, Brendan? Yeah, well... Funnily enough, very similar to you, and that I'm increasingly using them in all sorts of all sorts of procedures, Mark. And I think they have a, a very good a very good analgesic effect. Although you know most of it sort of 
thinking anecdotally with with those individual patients, but no, I'm certainly increasingly um, using them um, and slapping myself for not using them in 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 some cases where I should be using them all the time. The classic there would be those rabbit dentals that I should be using them in all all of those complex rabbit dental procedures. And sometimes I get to the end of the procedure and then I think, oh, I forgot to put the local anaesthetic in at the start. Um, and is, with those ones, go on, go on. yes. No, I was just um, so other, on the. It's yes, just sorry. I was just going to say what a pleasure it is when you do do uh, the lo- regional block, the local anaesthetic in one of those dental abscesses, one of those extractions or whatever, um, and the anaesthetic just you know the there's the you can just tell the rabbit doesn't feel it. The anaesthetic flat lines. It's just a thing of beauty to behold. Yes, yes, yeah, and and uh, I think that's the the key with those when you see that you can crank down the um the gas on them and that you don't have any any um local twitching or the animal moving at all when you get into those really painful bits where you're scraping out um, tooth root abscesses etc that you know that it is it is having a, an excellent effect with them. Yes, so. Other, um, I want you to talk about the, um, the the other types of potential analgesics and whether they work in in our little birdie patients well, as well. Tramadol is like an tramadol. interesting one, and I'm in using it increasingly in my reptile cases. But I've got to say that um, in the birds, um, I struggle to find it a useful uh, medication for two reasons. The first one is that it's a um, you know, predominantly uh, seems to have most of its action at the mu receptor, um, and uh, and it has a number of other effects uh, with other neurotransmitters and um, and particularly with serotonin and uh, uh, and adrenaline. But um, I, it's, uh, the big trouble I have with it, Brendan, is that it tastes awful and it's a huge battle to get it into the birds. Where meloxicam uh, is, you know, um, might not be the most normal taste in the world. Most of the birds accept it um, and it's not uh, too much of a problem. But tramadol seems to be something they don't get a particular taste for and, and they really um, can get distressed if you force uh, force them, you know, force administration on them. So, what about those other opiates you mentioned, bitorphan? Are, are there any other opiates that you consider using well, in birds? Um, and why? there are other opiates that I consider using in birds. Um, probably the 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 main one would be in situations, for example, where we're working with uh, maybe not pet birds, but maybe with uh, birds of prey who seem to have a different, um, you know, pattern of opiate receptor um, and seem to be much more sensitive to the the mu uh, antagonists. And so something like... um, uh, um, um, methadone or morphine or um, uh, even a, f- a chopped up fentanyl patch uh, might be a useful thing to use in those birds. It's complicated. There are some uh, pigeons that seem to have, some pigeon species seem to have um, a better response to the mu antagonists. But um, I think that um, the uh, the majority of the 
the birds that we commonly see, we're dependent on butorphanol. The interesting thing is that buprenorphine seems to have like no effect whatsoever. Um, it doesn't seem to um, even have a modest analgesic effect. It doesn't seem to have uh, any effect on the the um, on the uh, sparing of anesthesia. Um, it uh, we we almost use no buprenorphine in birds at all. Yes. So you mentioned uh, morphine and methadone. So do you still sort of um, suggest using those sometimes or not? And you know my my love for using um, methadone as a, a pre-medicant and, and, and an analgesic we're both, in the small uh, mammals. You know, singing from the same song sheet in that regard with our small mammals. Um, but um, only the only time I use it with the birds are when I'm when I have one of those species that I uh, have some evidence to suggest they have a different pattern of, of uh, opiate receptor arrangement in the central nervous system. So mainly um, birds of prey. We don't use them those yes. uh, those drugs routinely with um, with our uh, you know parrots of the a couple of hundred odd species of parrots we that are kept as pets. Um, there's none of those that uh, we we could confidently say the those uh, mu drugs are having any uh, appreciable effect. Okay. And have you got fancy and, and tried any CRI, constant rate infusion, um, analgesic drips? Uh, well, we have long, just long very, very yeah. recently, and probably it's one of the things I'm going to have to give a review for, um, uh, gotten um, new pumps, and we're just about to get some... Um, syringe drivers are the electronic syringe drivers and so um those uh those definitely those devices allow us to set up the uh cris and um and it is something we plan to experiment with a little bit because we are a little bit worried about the short duration of action um and we don't want to, you know, the, the times that we do approach those higher doses, we are worried about the depression of respiratory function. Um, so we are, and particularly in long anesthesia. So if we can manage our um, anesthesia intravenously, um, if we can manage our analgesia intravenously with a CRI, I think that's going to work really well. But I can't tell you I've had lots of experience with it yet, Brendan. What about you? Yeah. No, my my experience with long bird anesthesias is um is is very <laughs> well basically zero <laughs> mark that I can remember. Perhaps when I was working as a zoo vet, we had some more prolonged surgical procedures. But these days, I I do, I do very few anesthesia anesthetics in birds, let alone um, prolonged ones with them. Yeah, I'd be interested to see whether or not. Do you know any papers out there of using, say, ketamine in those? I do um, not. I know that um you know. We regularly use the um, ketamine, lignocaine, um, methadone, morphine, whichever uh, infusions in our cats and dogs. Um, I'm not aware of any evidence to suggest that. Yes. Um, but but having said that, um, it would be very interesting. Like there is the same um, neuroanatomy. Um, some of the transmitters and the receptors are different, but, um, it'd be very interesting to know if that would make a difference. Yes. 
Well, you'll have to report back to us, Mark, in in a future in a future podcast. Are there any other any other comments you want to make before we close about the analgesia with with the local anaesthetics? Um, are, are there any tricks or tips or particular products that you, that you steer clear of or that you suggest that are good to use in those local? No, no, we generally just and there's a pretty good um, pretty good reason for that that um, we like to stick with the relatively short duration of of action that uh, lignocaine gives us um, because um, we find that the birds are particularly, you know, one of the problems with using um, the much longer acting local anaesthetics in dogs, say for their dentals, is that they sometimes chew their tongues quite badly um, because they still can't feel them once they're conscious. And um, certainly that is a potential problem for for our birds as well. If they have a part of their body where they they can't feel it at all um, after an anaesthesia, then that you could imagine the damage one of those cockatoos would do in relatively short order on a part of their body they couldn't feel. So um, so we do tend to steer clear of things like bupivacaine yes. and um, we just work with lignocaine. Excellent. Well, Mark, that's a good... A good introduction, a good summary of analgesia in um, in our avian friends, and um, yeah, I look forward to hearing um, or seeing your publication, Mark, of um, CRIs in in avian patients. Um, um, I was going to say, um, yeah, I expect it to be out within the next couple of years, Mark. Um, no, early, no later than that. Um, so, although. Um, the way you are, you are very thorough with your with your um, with your writings. Um, you, you tend to spew out a huge, voluminous amount of impressive data, um, and um, but it can take you a little bit of time to get it out there. Um, so I'm going to push you and push you to get a paper out. Well, I'll this tell you one thing, Brendan. So I think we should I'm going to hold uh, you to this. There, there, we need some papers, don't we, for our. Um, for our uh, in Australia here, the our UPAV group is always interested in hearing um, um, reports of uh, things. So it, it is something that I do. There's lots of little bits in clinic that I need to write down and pass on to the editors and make sure it gets into our uh, UPAV newsletter. Well, maybe take a couple of days off from from getting out there, taking photos in the bush and um, sit on the computer and write a few articles, Mark. I think that's what you need to do. And with that, we'll talk to you all next week. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time.